everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney, and joining me on the line, fresh off some Supreme Draft, is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, what's up in your world? Well, I mean, I have been playing a lot of Supreme Draft, which I, I guess we could talk about now. Um, you, you haven't had a chance to, to do any of these yet, have you? I have not. I've been swamped at school this week. It has been a doozy. Oof. Yeah. So uh, I, I took a little break from Amonkhet Remastered. I was getting absolutely trounced in AKR best of one in mythic um so i took a little break and i was like oh, i'm gonna check out what this supreme draft thing is on magic online so for folks who don't know uh, magic online introduced this fun weird new thing called supreme draft where you open up a booster pack you're, you're at a draft by yourself basically so you open up a booster pack and you take a la double masters you take two cards out of the pack and then you discard the rest of that pack and then you open up a fresh new pack make two picks out of that one do the same thing 18 times so you'll end the draft with 36 picks and then you build a deck and then you play out the rounds um so what they're doing it this time around is with all ravnica block packs except for war of the spark so the three packs from original ravnica the three packs from return to ravnica and then uh, ravnica allegiance and guilds of ravnica and so you get some random assortment of those packs distributed over 18 packs and then you draft and what's sort of really fun about this particular iteration of it, and they're going to be switching it up next week, and it's just going to be Modern Horizons. So you'll open up 18 packs of just Modern Horizons. But what's really interesting about this iteration is like, you know, how in Guilds of Ravnica, only five guilds are represented. And in Ravnica Allegiance, only five guilds are represented. And that's the same for Return to Ravnica and Gate Crash. And then it's weirdly split. Like there's, it's like four, three, three over the three packs in original Ravnica block. And so you sort of have this fun little puzzle of when you have the, your first few minutes of looking at all the boosters that you have, what distribution you have of the boosters, you get to sort of maybe see like, oh, is, am I going to find a lane where one guild is overrepresented? Like, you know, 11 of these packs have Selesnia, so maybe I just force a Selesnia deck. Or it's more evenly distributed, and so maybe I'm just going to draft like a bunch of gates and a bunch of multicolored good stuff payoffs. Like I drafted a bunch of gates and then gate payoffs. I sent you a screenshot of good old Glaive of the Guild Pact, our, our best card from <laughs> Guilds of Ravnica. Um, so that puzzle has been really fun, I think. Um, and so if, you know, by the time this episode releases, there's only going to be a day or two more of being able to play it. But if you've got, you know, a Magic Online account, you've got 10 tickets or 100 play points to to check out this this format, I think it's pretty fun. It, the deck picks I saw in the Lords of Limited Discord looked like really high-powered sealed pools with tons of great fixing. Is that fairly accurate in your experience? Yeah. I mean, I do think there there have been times, like right now I have an Agroboros deck because I just sort of like mapped out like in pack one, I was like, all right, I think I'm... Based on what the packs are doing, I can get a Boros deck. I've had like a really good Simic deck before. I had a, a busted Is It deck on stream yesterday. So you can get these really good streamlined two color decks as well if you plan out your draft that way. But I do think the default is probably just like scoop up the fixing because you've got all the gates and the bounce lands in original Ravnica blocks. So you've got a lot of good fixing at your disposal and signets and, and clue stones and lockets. So you have an abundance of fixing. So if you do open the good bomb rares then you have the ability to cast them so I, I do think that that deck can come together a lot as well for sure sounds sweet yeah so that that's been my world but you've been uh, a busy boy in non-magic related things yeah yeah we've been uh doing school still i would have lost i would have lost a lot of money but <laughs> school was still going to be in person at this point but it is and you know kids have been great about wearing their masks and doing what we ask and i i am confident that we're doing good things for students but the thing i always say is that at what cost and i don't think we're going to be able to know 
that until you know until it's too late yeah wow that is a stark reality there ben so we're gonna we're gonna take the next whatever hour to to dip away yeah, from didn't that mean, a little bit <laughs> didn't mean to kill the kill the vibe on the <laughs> sorry podcast. sorry we'll, we'll try we'll try and pick it back up here um so this week we are doing our lords of limited patented 50 takes in 50 minutes for corset 2021 and this is sort of our send-off show where we, we try and synthesize all the stuff that we learned about the format get our our great hot takes in here as well and rattle off 50 different talking points for the format in the entirety of this episode but before we dive into that we just have a few housekeeping things first things first the patreon page ben patreon.com slash lords of limited is where folks can go to get back to the show if they so choose um, as we gear up for zendikar rising coming out the discord is the place to be and everyone who gives back to the show via the patreon gets access to the lords of limited discord we've already got our zendikar rising preview season channel started and then once the full spoiler is out and people get their hands on the cards that channel is going to explode with all the talking points of what's the play what's the build what's the pick draft with me um trophy decks of course really one of the best things that you can see early in the format is what's winning and of course we want to welcome each and every one of our new patrons the first week that they join so this week we are welcoming tom jacob bart jade jedi lenart justin michael richard billy and helio thank you thank you thank you we really appreciate your support yep we say it every time a new set's coming out it's best time to join the discord and get in on the action so zendikar rising fast approaching also just something as simple as supreme draft like i have not done a supreme draft yet personally but i've read all of the stuff in the supreme draft channels in the discord and i feel prepped when i sit down to do my first supreme draft probably after we finish recording this podcast (laughs) (laughs) yeah I, i would encourage you to do so maybe a little we're we gonna get a little Ben stream today. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, great. Sa- okay. Saturdays and Sundays are gonna be heavy stream days for the for the foreseeable future. Love that. Love that. All right. And what else we got on the docket here in our housekeeping, Ben? We've got CFB on the docket, baby. So CFB is running a lot of sweet action for you right now to take advantage of. First and foremost, that applies to limited players. I think is Ubox we buy, and you've done a sick promotion for this on your stream. But essentially, the the shtick is. That you have some cards that you don't want, you put them in some sleeves, put them in a box, ship them off to CFB, and CFB is responsible for sorting them, appraising them, whatever. They shoot you back an offer. If you like the offer, you accept. If you don't, they'll send your cards back to you free of charge. So great way to unclutter your collection and or sell those draft rares. You know, you've drafted 10, 20 times, you got some bulk rares ship them off to CFB and maybe get enough dollar bills to buy some new product for you and your playgroup. Yeah, that even applies towards their, you know, 30% store credit bonus stuff. So if if you want to not get the money and instead use it to buy some stuff from CFB, you can do that as well. Thank you so much to CFB for running all those sweet promos. And thank you to them for sponsoring this podcast. We're super excited to be a part of the CFB family. Absolutely. All right, Ben. So we're going to start the timer here. We got 50 points here in our show notes, and we're going to rattle them off in the next 50 minutes, starting with point number one. Let's go. Number one. M21 is fast, and the Naya color pairs best support the aggressive speed of the format at common. Yeah, this this sort of felt like the name of the game, maybe not early on, but but fairly early on that that these three colors reign supreme. I think perhaps for me, from the initial spoiler, green was a bit of a sleeper. Um, maybe no pun intended with drowsing Tyranidon there, but <laughs> I, I, you know, it took me a little while to get on board green being good. And I think maybe I was just coming off of Ikoria and being like, well, green wasn't good there. So maybe green's bad here. I don't know what it was, but it took me a little while. But yeah, the Naya color pairs 
are, are really rock solid at common. They work really well together. And I think they, they reign supreme here. I think that's one of the dangers of getting locked into opinions before you play with the format, right? Because I was watching, I, I'm not supposed to, you know, we try to, we try to not do the set review stuff together before the set comes out. So we have good fodder for the podcast, but I was watching a little bit of your and Alex's set review and when specifically when you were reviewing green and it felt like you were just feeding off of each other about green's bad, green's bad, green's bad. But I like, I was looking at the green cards and I was like, and I don't know, green looks okay to me. It doesn't look quite as bad as you all are making it out to be. And then when you get a chance to play with the guards, just keeping an open mind about those sorts of things so that you can reevaluate. And it turned out green was pretty darn good in this format, largely because of how good green white was as a color pair. Yeah, it's off the back of green white. And also, I think off the back of how great Drowsing Pteranodon is in the format. If you don't miss on that, I think it's like Drowsing Pteranodon, Visionary and Hunter's Edge are great cards. And then past that, there's not a lot to write home about for green. It's just that it, it has synergy and those top three are so good. I mean, Pride Malkin's pretty great. Yeah, that's fair. Truffle Snout's also pretty good. Yeah, I guess. I don't know that they're, they're quite a notch below, I think, those top three. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Number two, white is the best color. The official Lords of Limited, and I think just the official M21 color power rankings go white number one, red number two, green number three, gap, blue number four, huge gap, black number five. Yeah, and I, I think it might honestly just be the huge gap. Blue, steadily over the course of the format, blue got worse and worse and worse for me. Yeah. Really the only two blue, that's not even fair. I mean, green blue is fine. None of them were outstanding, I think. Red blue was maybe the best. I'm not even convinced of that. I think red blue is the best. I I do think so. Because so many of blue's cards, I think, shine in red blue. For sure. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, but white is, uh, is definitely the best color overall. Number three... Worked out nicely that I get this point. Seasoned Hallowblade, a.k.a. Ben Slayer Angel, is almost as good as Bane Slayer Angel. Whoa, 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 whoa. You wrote this point and you didn't even say better then. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, it's hard to, after LSV goes on Twitter and says, <laughs> no, you're wrong, to uh, to continue to tout that opinion. Um, but I do think it's it's almost best of one versus best of three. I could see taking Seasoned Hallowblade over Bane Slayer Angel in best of one still. Best of three, I'm probably on team team baneslayer at this point but even more than that i think it's important to note that the conversation even being a conversation is a nod to a how busted season hallowblade is and b how aggressively slanted white is in the format and how much season hallowblade shines as a result of that so once we announced that we were partnering with cfb and writing content for them mashi scanlan tried to start some stuff by taking to the twitter streets and saying okay so what do you take pack one pick one Bane Slayer Angel or Seasoned Hallowblade. And I responded that, and he tagged a bunch of people in it, me, you, LSV, Marshall, I think. And I responded that in best of one, I would take Seasoned Hallowblade and best of three, I would take Bane Slayer Angel. And LSV then didn't respond. And Mashi was like, LSV, I see that you haven't responded yet. And then LSV tweeted, I agree with Ethan, which I then have, you know, taken a photo of, printed, laminated, hung framed. on my wall, framed, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kiss it before I go to bed every night. But uh, so I, I do think, I think that that is really the consideration there between best of one and best of three and how aggressive this format slants and how much that's sort of like, you know, put on steroids in best of one. For sure. Number four, green white is the best deck for the first time in forever. How excited were you, Ben? I was really excited. <laughs> Poor green white always gets the shaft and I always feel kind of bad just like hating on green white. Like think about War of the Spark. Like it would take green white being wide open for me to have drafted green white not you you were drafting cats aggressively in war of the spark but i mean 
it's it's typically not a high powered color pair, largely because it doesn't have great removal. So it was a really nice change of pace for that to be the best deck and to get to bias myself towards a color pair that I don't normally get to. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but think back to the crash course and when we sort of try and dig through the color pairs and what the support is for what they sort of seem to be doing. We had blue, red and green, white back to back in the show notes. And there's a ton of uh, on face value. There's a ton of support for this like blue, red spells matter deck. And there's not really a ton for green, white plus one plus one counters. Like there's a few creatures that grant them, a few creatures that care about them. But by and large, it's not like a, it wasn't a huge portion of the card pool. And I think you and I were both pretty skeptical of how well this deck would play out. Do you think there's a way we could have seen how good this was going to be? I don't really. I mean, largely it was good because of how fast the format was. And it's really hard to tell things like that from the spoiler. Do you think it's because Conclave Mentor is so good that the color pair is good or that the color pair is good and so that makes Conclave Mentor such a high pick? I think it's all of the above. I mean, Conclave Mentor's busted, but you can have really good green-white decks that don't have a Conclave Mentor. Conclave Mentor starts are just like borderline unbeatable. Yeah. But I think green-white as a color pair, just being as aggressive as it is and having great tricks, having feet of resistance, like it's just got all of the best aggressive cards. Yeah, for sure. Number five, the Lords of Limited official gold uncommon power rankings. Taking the top spot, Conclave Mentor, followed by Alpine Houndmaster, then Experimental Overload, Watcher of the Spear, Lore Scale Quaddle, Twin Blade Assassins, Indulging Patrician, Obsessive Stitcher, Leafkin Avenger, and bringing up the rear, poor old Dire Fleet Warmonger. Wah, wah. Yeah. I never got to do the steel and sack thing. Never? I never. Try as I might. I never got to do it. Wow. I did it a couple different decks. Yeah. It's a good time. Number six. Alpine Watchdog looks like a D plus, but plays out like a C plus in this format. Yeah. Tutu is just a super relevant body. Vigilance on it is very annoying in the races, especially if you get, you know, a plus one plus one counter or two, or you put a short sword or two on it. And that was not apparent from the format like to me that short sword was going to be playable i had sort of written that off Um, and i think most aggressive decks actively wanted one to two copies of short swords and then just pairing it with green white or feet of resistance like a three three vigilance is gigantic in the format and you just want two drops it plays well with the alpine Houndmaster. it just does a lot of things well and it's a good aggressive two drop in the best color in the format it also really makes it hard for your opponent to feel like they can race effectively because there's this real feel bad of like, well, I mean, I don't want to block it so that I can then attack, but then, well, I can't really attack into it because I'm you have the choice of if you want to block with it. And so it, it really throws a wrench into the math of racing, which is a lot of what this format is about. Yeah, I agree. That takes us on to number seven, the Lords of Limited official Sanctum power rankings. Taking the top spot, Sanctum of Calm Waters, it's the blue one followed by Sanctum of Shattered Heights. That's the red one. I think those two are premium, top of the heap. Then there's a gap, followed by Sanctum of Stone Fangs, which is the black one. And then I think a pretty large gap, followed by Sanctum of Fruitful Harvest, the green, and bringing up the rear pretty handily as only an enabler for the best ones, Sanctum of Tranquil Light, the white one. Yeah, I mean, I think Sanctum of Calm Waters is really the only one, maybe in some shells, the black one, but really the blue one is the only one you would play by itself. And then the rest, you you sort of have to like, you know, weigh in terms of how many of the others do I have and how worth it is to to play this one. Right. And I think if you have a blue and a red shrine, you're just playing both of them. And I think if you have the blue shrine, honestly, I think I would probably put any other shrine in my deck to try to turn it on. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, just because draw two, discard one is so huge. Yeah, so powerful. Number eight, Teferi's Tutelage and Seasoned Hallowblade are the mythic uncommons of the set. 
And it's kind of cool that they're on different ends of the speed spectrum, though not it's, it's sort of unfair to call Teferi's tutelage a slow card because that card can you just win games by turn six with it. Yeah, I agree. But you have to build a non-aggressive deck, I think, to do that. Like if you if you slot Teferi's tutelage into your aggro blue red spells deck, I think just as a potential powerful card or alternate win condition, I think you're doing it wrong. I think if you're if you're maining Teferi's Tutelage, I think you want to actively be trying to play defensive cards like Wall of Runes and things like that and play your Rousing Reeds. And you want to play your Frantic Inventories, you want to play your Reign of Revelations, that sort of thing. And you want to set up with defensive speed to give yourself time to cast those spells to turbo kill your opponent with Teferi's Tutelage and prevent them from killing you. Yeah, Tutelage is not the kind of card for folks coming back to this episode, perhaps, and having not played M21 during its heyday here this summer. Teferi's Tutelage is not a card you just like slot into your blue deck as like, well, maybe I just mill them out with this. Like you want to make sure that it's part of your deck's game plan in a very real way, or maybe the crux of your deck's game plan a lot of the time, rather than just an afterthought. Right. 100% agree. Whereas Seasoned Hallowblade just <laughs> it needs no work. You just, you know, 39 planes on a Seasoned Hallowblade. That's a good deck right there. I mean, yeah, <laughs> certainly. If, certainly if you can get, I can confirm Seasoned Hallowblade can single-handedly win games or a Seasoned Hallowblade with one plus one plus one counter on it definitely is enough to single-handedly win a game. Right. With like Satessin training or short sword or a counter, like just boosting it to a four power creature is pretty big game. The first time I won on a mold of four with Season Hallowblade, I was like, oh, okay, (laughs) I I get it. (laughs) And I was on Team Tutelage as best on as Mythic Uncommon at the start of the format. And I just like, it's not even close for me now. Right. Number nine, Black White Life Gain needs a lot to come together. Yeah, there's a lot of moving pieces. So first of all, you need the uncommon payoffs, right? You need Indulging Patrician or maybe Gryphonary gets there or whatever, but you need the things, Silver Smoke Ghoul, you need the things that care about gaining life at uncommon. Yeah, and I think you also need ways to consistently gain chunks of three life. So things that have like Infernal Scarring, Dub, I think we ended up on it being best in an aggressive shell with those type of cards to pump your lifelink creatures as the most consistently reliable way to enable all those build arounds that wanted you to gain three life at a time. Yeah, being able to put one of those auras on Indulging Patrician to make it a three power lifelinker, so then it just triggered itself. That was a really strong move, I think, in those those style decks. And you know what card really, which we were like, I feel like we were really excited about and just didn't get there was Revitalize. Yes. That just like wasn't what this deck was about. Yeah, I agree. Where did you end up on Gryphonary out of curiosity? Because I was pretty hot on that coming into the format and you were not. I, I think it's terrible. Yeah, I th- I think I'm more, I think I'm more, if there's a spectrum, I think I'm slightly below middle. Like I'd give it a four just, out of 10 or ben, something just, in the deck. Just eat your humble pie and say it's terrible. <laughs> just do it. It's not terrible, terrible. It's pl- it's playable if you get a good version of the deck. All right. That's, number- that's, that's a ringing endorsement right yeah, there. Yeah, sure. It's number 10. Swift <laughs> Response is a very powerful card that didn't have a great home in the format because White wanted to be aggressive. And I think we've seen this come up sort of time and time again, these like white removal spells that end up underperforming. And, and I think that this is maybe it's not like the new norm or whatever, but it's definitely something I'm going to keep my eye on for sure in future sets. Yeah. And I think there was there were two sides to this, right? One was you didn't want to take swift response early because it didn't really fit in what white wanted to do. But there also was like the hidden benefit of if you happen to end up in some sort of white X deck that wanted to be controlling, you know, maybe like a white blue Teferi's tutelage deck or whatever. Swift response was like a B plus level card 
that you could get seventh pick or potentially even on the wheel. I don't think that was crazy to happen sometimes. I mean, and it was an absurdly good splash removal spell in like multicolor nonsense decks. And and you uh-huh. could re- and you could reliably get it late because in theory white decks didn't want it. Number eleven, Wall of Runes wins the most improved award from War of the Spark. I'm gonna I'm gonna insert some loud thunderous applause here. Good for you, Wall of Runes. Wall of Runes uh, really stepped up to the plate here in M21. Yeah, I think I was not a believer until. I played with it like I'd heard some rumblings and I was like, nah, people are just trying to make this good. But then when I did it in a blue deck that wanted to be defensive, I was impressed. It blocks three threes, which is the most common power and toughness, I think, from aggressive opponents that you're going to get. And and all of that and digging towards cards that were relevant made it, I think, worth the card. These kinds of cards aren't supposed to be good, right? Like we've seen one mana O fours before and like just zero power creatures are not good and limited. And these cards get outclassed or just like don't end up being worth a card many turns down the game. Like it's just interesting how well Wallavern's lined up like save for drowsing Pteranodon getting beefed up to like four power. Creatures are very small, as you said. And so this usually was able to just like negate at least one attacker from your opponent. Yeah. I will put honorable mention for most improved from War of the Spark as Makeshift Battalion as well. Ooh, yeah, I think so. Number 12, Black is not good in the format. And this will be a running theme in many of our points because it (laughs) isn't deep at common and doesn't play well with a lot of the other color pairs. So if you just think about like, you know, Grasp of Darkness, very, very powerful card, not good in the format also incentivizes you to be heavy black which you don't want to be most of the time and then death boom Thalad number two and then there is just a huge cliff drop off in quality of black's commons after that well and even death bloom Thalad is not the most exciting right i mean just like when you get your death bloom Thalad killed by scorching dragon fire and you don't get your one one and you're like and this is the card that pulled me into black that's a real feel bad right so the double whammy of not being deep at common and not playing well with the other colors, like if you think about black, white, we talked about fussy. I think that was that was maybe the episode <laughs> where where fussy was the word of the episode. Yeah. And then black, blue reanimate like again, no. fussy, tough yeah. to get it to come together. Black, green, like wants to grind and be a mid range deck, but it didn't really consistently beat the aggro decks. So I think like not great. And then black, red. Had a lot of stuff going on, but again, like was not clearly aggressive and did not have a clear plan to stop the like one train station rail only aggressive decks. That takes us on to number 13, Drowsing Pteranodon or Llanowar Visionary, which is the best green common? Have we settled this debate? I, I said, it looks like we're we're going to land on different sides of uh, of the plate here. Oof. All right. So here's where I'm at. I'm on Team Visionary in best of three. And I'm on Drowsing Pteranodon in Best of One. And I'm on Team Sleepy Dino in both. Oof. Wow. So can I ask why? I think Drowsing Pteranodon leads me towards the better decks more often. And picking it early lets me then think about like, it just like changes my pick order. I thinking about last week's episode, it then starts me down this road of like, all right, well, now I'm valuing Pride Malkin's higher and plus most one counters higher and Satessan training and short swords. I just feel like it starts me down a path that is going to be more focused potentially, whereas Visionary is just sort of like, this is good value, but what am I doing with it? Yeah, I think I'm on Visionary and Best of Three because I trust that those decks are slightly underdrafted in Best of Three. And I think it sets you up to like, if you get 
a good version of a deck with like two or three land of war visionaries and you get the good uncommons i think it's better than the the aggressive decks i think it's a higher ceiling lower floor card in best of three and i think you know train it on best of ones just fast enough that you should do that because it's always going to be the best thing but i think i'm willing to take a risk with the visionaries in best of three to potentially try to spike a higher power level deck yeah maybe higher ceiling of the kind of deck i'm not even sure i agree with that like Pteranodon on two into Pride Malkin on three, that's a pretty high ceiling. Yeah. And that's not hard to think that it's going to come together. Yeah, I don't know. It's close. I, I might be wrong. The jury's still it's... out, folks. Jury's still out. <laughs> we, we didn't we didn't make a decision. <laughs> <laughs> Number 14, you need good uncommons or rares to incentivize you to draft something other than an aggro deck, right? It's just what the commons support most of the time. Yeah, 100%. Aggro is where it's at in this format. I think, you know, and... Maybe that's maybe just knowing that is why Pteranodon is is the pick in best of one and best of three. But I, I think or maybe it was just because I drafted M21 so much that I wanted to have a reason to try to do something other than that. Maybe that's why I'm picking Land of War Visionary ahead of drowsing Pteranodon. But I think ultimately for sure, aggro is what you want to be doing as the default. Speaking of aggro, number 15, Short Sword is good as a one or two of in almost every aggressive deck. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Short Sword's come a long way since Dominaria. Yeah, well, it just comes down to creature sizing and the speed of the format, right? There's a lot of two twos running around. The four and five drop cards are generally smaller in stature, like three, three, a lot of times. So all of a sudden, if you have your two, two Alpine watchdog and you slap a short sword on it, it can attack profitably into your opponent's four and five drops. And when your two drops are trading with your opponent's four and five drops, that's when you know you're doing it as an aggro deck. Number 16, the Lords of Limited official top five commons. We're going to count these down. Number five, Feet of Resistance. Number four, Lanawar Visionary. Number three, Drowsing Pteranodon. Number two, Scorching Dragonfire. And number one, Bosri's Acolyte. Ding, 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 ding. I pegged Bosri's Acolyte as the best common out of the spoiler. How does it feel? Feels good. I, but I but I didn't stay true. That That's what feels bad. As I didn't stay true. <laughs> Wait, what did you waver to? Did you flirt with Scorching Dragonfire? I flirted with Lanamore Visionary, too. Oh. Yeah scandalous scandalous i know i know don't don't tell on acolyte though um but that's it and you can just see it's all naya cards no blue or black cards to be found number 17 turd ogre still has reach number 18 goblin wizardry crash through and burn bright this might be like the holy trinity of synergy in red that goes best in a, a combo style blue red spells deck but really could be a pocket of synergy in any red aggro deck yeah i think i mean you need a critical mass of spells i think so could certainly be i could see it happening in red black i think is the next mm -hmm. most likely color pair yeah. feels a little out of place in red white and red green because those are more creature based strategies i think and you need you need a lot of copies of wizardry crash through and burn bright to make it work and if you're doing that it's a little out of place in those other color pairs but for sure i think these cards all play very well for each other and was certainly a back door that you could go down if you know you started out blue red and maybe blue red was contested but not this specific version of you know, blue, red. Yeah. And and if you've not played with this, this is just like, you know, you've got your prowess tokens from wizardry and then crash through bumps them up to have trample and plus one plus one. And then burn bright also gives them basically plus three plus one at instant speed. And so all of a sudden you're attacking, even if it's just with the one wizardry that you've cast, you're attacking with two five threes that have trample. That's pretty big game. And you combo that with any other wizardry tokens or any other prowess stuff or spellgorge or weird style things. And you really have a powerful attack that turn. And one of the one of the things to keep in mind is wizardry is best when you're the 
offensive player. So if, if you're playing against wizardry and you can force your opponent to be the defender, that's one of the best things you can do to help beat your opponent. Number 19, anything that costs four CMC or higher in this format needs to do something very special for it to be worth an early pick. Yeah, in aggro specifically, and you pegged this early in the format and put it into words that I really, really took to heart. That your four drops have to be cards that push damage, that like support your aggressive curve out, like Bosri's Acolyte, like Gale's Hooper, like Hunter's Edge, not like Burl Fist Oak or Sabretooth Mauler or, or cards like that. Just like random four drops is not where you want to be. Right. And it feels like this just needs to sort of be a staple of the podcast at this point. Yeah. I feel like for the last... <laughs> three or four or five sets. And I think you're you're high on this point just from as much cube drafting as you do. And I think it does carry over into limited at this point. Yeah. Like things that things that are for CMC or higher need to do something special. Yeah, I agree. Number 20, Brash Taunter is a stone cold bomb. Don't pass it. Have you been passed this card a lot? No, but I, I just was not on it as a bomb. I think for the first, whatever, two weeks of the format, I hadn't played against it. And then the first time I played against it, I was like, holy cow, <laughs> this card is oppressive. Yeah, I mean, if your plan is to win on the ground, Brash Taunter stops that plan dead in its tracks. Game's just over. Number 21, Gadrak looks really powerful, but ends up playing more like a C plus, maybe even worse than that in a very aggressive deck. Yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of times we've seen people posting decks on Twitter or Discord or deck techs on stream and Gadrak's in an aggressive red shell. And that's the first card I think, yeah, you should probably cut this. Like your deck doesn't want a 5-4 that can't attack. And it changes a little bit if you're not super aggressive and if you have some artifacts, like some short swords that are going to be laying around. But by and large, it is not a windmill slam dunk. Like I think pack one, pick one, I'm taking Scorching Dragonfire over Gadrak 10 out of 10 times. And I would not have thought that was the case at the start of the format. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Number 22, Skeleton Archer is one of the best tools Black has to combat the very aggressive decks. If this is a two-for-one, if you land this and kill a Hobble Fiend or Anointed Chorister, anything like that, you feel like you're pretty far ahead. Yeah, I think that one of the most backbreaking things that comes up in the format is you're playing white and you have a Siege Striker and your opponent oh. plays a Skeleton Archer and kills your Siege Striker. Oh, yeah, that's that's tough. That's tough to recover from. Number 23, all three of Red's two drops are good. Chandra's Magma, Igneous Kerr, and Hobble Fiend. I think I would rank them Magma 1, Hobble Fiend 2, Kerr 3. How do you feel about that? I feel very good about that, yeah. Yeah, and Hobble Fiend, I think, was kind of a sleeper. It, it went up for me more and more over the course of the format. It just was really tough to deal with. It took me playing against it a lot before I was able to internalize how happy I was with that card because the flip side of it was you could get them late, right? They would wheel a lot of the time if you were in red and red was open. like, And that felt good to be able to go, oh, I can get this two drop that I'm actually happy with. And it just paired well with stuff. If you you could end up getting some like death trigger stuff and like Pitchburn Devils or Arsonist or just some wizardry tokens lying around, threat of activation on this card was very real. Number 24, Rousing Reed plays well with all of the blue color pairs. So w w give me a little give me a little Ben Werney take on Rousing Reed here. Yeah, so I, I wrote this wrote this point, and I think I had a really interesting conversation with Alex from Limited Level Ups uh, about Rousing Reed, because he's very high on the card in the format. And I am less so. It's weird. It's kind of a dichotomy, because I do think it's the second best blue common, but I don't love it as a card. And so I think that more speaks to how poor blue is than how good rousing read is, right? I think its best home is blue red, like a blue red tempo deck, you know, where you're jumping your own igneous cur or something and you can push lots of damage in the air, things like that. 
blue green it plays pretty well like jumping a large monster you know blue green cares a lot about drawing two cards so certainly if you have that sort of synergy or you've got a teferi's tutelage can do can do good things there blue white it's it's good like it it has a home in blue white that's probably it's it's next best home besides blue red because you can put it on you know your alpine watchdog and you have a three three flying vigilance that's powerful um blue black it's a little out of place. Like ostensibly, it's a, a discard outlet for reanimator yeah, decks. That's a, but that's a trap. That is a huge trap, I think. Right. So like I'm not even thrilled about it there. So I think three of the four color pairs might be a little bit more accurate than all of the blue color pairs. But I think the fact that this is blue's second best common is a knock on blue in the format. Yeah, I agree. I think blue is a lot closer to black now that I'm sort of like putting that in the framework of where the colors lie. I do think there is that like it's Naya, pretty big gap blue then black yep number 25 siege striker looks innocuous but it is a house as i mentioned earlier it's only kryptonite is skeleton archer yeah and it plays incredibly well with two cards in, in particular in my mind and that's satessin training and watchdog so satessin training on siege striker being a, a cantrip and then now they can't even chump block it it's really powerful and the fact that you can attack with watchdog the same turn you're attacking with siege striker and then tap it to pump the Seed Striker is also a really big game. For sure. Number 26, Talarian Kraken looks clunky, but it wins games. Same for Warden of the Woods. Warden of the Woods, that card blows my mind. It basically has <laughs> Hexproof. It's basically a 6-mana 5-7 Hexproof. Vigilance. Yeah, Hexproof Vigilance, right. I'm just like, move over, Spined Megalodon. Like, who cares? Watch Warden of the Woods is so good. Yeah, that card's very oppressive. Both of those cards are so oppressive, and especially in decks with Llanowar Visionary or Palladium Mirror when you can power them out ahead of schedule. I Talarian Kraken, it took me getting beaten by it <laughs> three or four or five times before I was like, okay, I need to start picking this card higher. Yeah, talk about a reason to play blue. Talarian Kraken's a reason to play blue. Number 27, Black is really deep at Uncommon with Liliana's Devotee, Malefic Scythe, and Gormond, but it's just not enough to make up for being shallow at Common. All three of those Uncommons are very, very good, like should be like push you into Black hard, but all of them get picked a little lower than their power level because of how little you want to be black in the format and honestly how fast the format is right liliana's devotee there's just not time to hold up two mana often enough to really get going with the zombies well the other thing about cards like devotee and scythe and even gourmand is that they're best in aggressive decks like devotee you want to be able to trigger death on your own turn what's the easiest way to do that well it's by getting into combat and how do you do that well you have to be an aggressive deck and so these these cards sort of have this idea of like well, I want to grind because I want to get value out of these in the late game, but they're maximized by being aggressive and black just can't support that. Yeah. Number 28, combat tricks are gas in this format because of how the games play out. Like this has to be another Lords of Limited staple moving forward. Like just thinking about how aggressive decks want to push damage, they force double blocks and how good combat tricks are when you get in those situations. Like Titanic Growth, probably the first copy of that is like a C plus level card. And you can get that again, like 10th, 11th, 12th pick. I mean, I'm I'm happy playing three copies of Titanic Growth in my green white beatdown deck, or my green red beatdown deck for that matter, or my or my green whatever beatdown deck in M21. Titanic Growth is bonkers in M21. Yeah, agreed. Number twenty nine, Pride Malk and giving trample to creatures with plus one plus one counters on them was super underrated at the start of the format. It's the perfect one two punch with Drowsing Trinidad. You play your three three, 
play a pride malk and you've got a two one left over you've got a four four drowsing tranadon that's attacking on turn three that was one of the most busted starts at common in the format well and the big thing here for me the big let's get on board with pride malkin was like it basically felt like a one and a half for one because a two one body was relevant it's like why truffle snout was good because like gaining four and then having a two two was still relevant it didn't feel like a downside Absolutely. Number 30, the blue-black reanimate with Rise Again at common. It looked promising. Someone might have had Rise Again in their top three black commons, Ben. I don't know who that scrub was. But it didn't quite get there. I think this deck, I think, is the biggest trap in the format from what I see in terms of people posting decks in Discord or on Twitter or in deck techs on stream. I think they get into blue-black for the wrong reasons most of the time. So what does an ideal blue-black look like to you and how do you get into it? I think blue-black is like classic control, like really efficient removal spells, counter spells, defensive speed, card draw to then pull ahead. Like I think you want to build it like the most defensive controlling deck you can. And then if you have a reanimator package in it, great. But I think ideally that's obsessive stitcher and not rise again. Um, but, But all of that just feels like it's a little clunky and you probably don't even have room for it if you have the good blue black control deck. Right. Like you want wall of runes. You want two to three copies of wall of runes. You want two to three copies of grasp of darkness. And then you want a couple reigns of revelation or you want four frantic inventories to just, you want to be on the not die plan and then use my card advantage. And the fact that wall of runes is cheap enough to maybe go on turn five, cast a reign of revelation, play a wall of runes. So you don't fall too far behind. Like that's what you want to do in blue black. I agree. Right. You just then I think you just get into this trap where you're like, oh, well, I have a spined Megalodon and a rise again. And well, now I want rousing read. So I have a discard outlet. And it's just like, well, now you're playing a bunch of junkers that are not on plan for what your deck wants to do. Number 31, bumping a two drops power and toughness by plus one plus one with a short sword or a plus one plus one counter was enough to make it trade with most four and five drops, which is a huge part of the reason the format's so aggressive. Yeah, I have nothing to add to that. I think that point is incredibly, incredibly apt. Number 32, Basri's Acolyte is the mythic common of the set as a result of this and as the reason why it is the number one common. Yeah, curving two drop, three drop into Basri's Acolyte was just game so much of the time that it happened. Number 33, Kervek the Spiteful is an awkward card. Where did we land on it? I still don't feel comfortable with this. My gut told me that it was not great. But then I had a lot of people, you, Alex, that not, were hot on it. No, at the no, beginning no, no. The- don't let me in with this. I never liked this card. Wait, what? I never liked this card. I thought you were talking about how powerful it was. Never in my life. You're, it's, it was just Alex. Alex is just, just trying to rope us in to think this card is good. <laughs> It, this card is bad. I, during my like week of like experimenting with non-aggro stuff, I pack one, pick one it, and I was like, let's build around it. And then I quote unquote built around it by like having no X1s and whatever. And then I still cut it at the end of the draft because it's so bad. Oh, you know, you know who it was? It wasn't you. It was Amaz. It was Alex. Alex and Amaz were talking about how busted it was. So like I would Honestly, play with it and I would you? pick it. Honestly, <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> If anyone so is I, interested I, in hosting a limited podcast with me, just <laughs> you can check me out on Twitter at Lord Tupperware. I'm taking all DMs here. <laughs> Number 34, M21 is the perfect format to evaluate how cards work well in archetypes and what their colors want to do in the nature of the format. Yeah, I think lots of the distinctions are super clear cut. Like red really wants to be aggressive, wants to beat down. White really wants to be aggressive, really wants to beat down. Green really wants to be aggressive, really wants to beat down. And then like you can see the plus one plus one counter synergies in green white. You can see the spell synergies in red blue. In black and blue, it's a little less obvious. But again, then there's like 
the the lane of war visionary versus drowsing Tyranidon distinction. Visionary really wants to go in a controlling deck that wants to ramp. Tyranidon really wants to go in an aggressive beatdown deck. And those two cards being at the top of Green's Commons pushed you in totally different directions. So it was really it was kind of like a uh, a thought experiment almost in the format about you know thinking about synergy and what cards want to go where. Well, I think drowsing Tyranidon to keep coming back to this card is a super interesting one in, in this respect because I can't tell you how many drafts I've had where like. I end up maybe with like a blue green deck or something. And I look at Drowsing Pteranodon and it's just Moat Piranhas. And that feels really bad, right? The floor of Drowsing Pteranodon is quite low. Like when you're not beating down with it, when you're not looking to augment it, or if you end up with it in an aggro deck, but it's like, oh, I only have like three ways to permanently buff it. And like Feet of Resistance isn't the thing you're looking for, right? You don't want to spew it as just a, I'm going to put a counter on this to enable it to be able to attack now. So like that kind of card, I think is really interesting in terms of how it, you know, how it slots into certain archetypes and then how you need to draft around it or or try and, and build towards it to augment it, to maximize it. Agreed. Number 35, there are only about a dozen rares better than Seasoned Hallowblade in the format. Can you remember like a more poppery format than M21? Like the rares are by and large pretty junky. Yeah, I mean the top like X are pretty great. But sure. past that, yeah, I agree. Top they 10? Are not good. Yeah, yeah, I think so. This this makes M21 just more about the most powerful uncommons and the top commons than anything else. Yeah, and I think that's been a that's been true of a lot of limited sets recently. I guess maybe maybe Theros Beyond Death is just skewing my my thought in recent memory. Well, and I think I would even say about Theros Beyond Death, if if I had stopped being such a crybaby like early on in the format and had looked for things like Thrill of Possibility, I think we found that there were ways to use the commons and uncommons more effectively when you got the rares as well. Yeah, I think that's true. Number 36, the gap in power from the good cards and the rest is pretty huge. So I think this plays out in draft a few ways. And I see this in in coaching sessions that I do a lot that like people get locked into colors or color pairs way too early in this format. And as a result, end up passing, you know, maybe signpost uncommons in, in a color pair they see them pass them by like pick five, pick six, when they're, you're really not just giving up on very much to take that card for the whatever 5%, 10% of the time, that then that color pair ends up being the thing that's open. So I think you really need to not get locked in and, and really taking anything lower than the top commons early in the draft is a huge feel bad. Right. So taking things above replacement level is a key to drafting in the format, especially in pack one. Agreed. Number 37, Skeleton Archer, Goblin Arsonist, and Alchemist Gift is a nice backdoor deck at common. Yeah, you just get this little like death touch ping package in a red black deck and all three of those commons go pretty late. Even Skeleton Archer, I think, wheels sometimes. Yeah, it's partially because there's just competition at the four drop slot for it, right? Yeah, but then this deck really utilizes it very well, I think. To its maximum effectiveness, for sure. Number 38, you should only be drafting black if you're sure you're the only black drafter at the table. I think, you know, to to touch on all the points we've made so far about black being weak at common, grasp of darkness sort of leading you down perhaps a path you don't want to go down, but just be wary of starting a draft with a couple strong black cards. I'm I'm pretty off of like first picking Malefic Psy, Liliana's Devotee, those powerful cards, just because I want to make sure that black is open before I move into it. Like I want to see grasp pick five or whatever, and then go, okay, maybe this is a reason to move into black rather than start black card, black card, it then dries up. And then I feel really bad. I think I'd be okay being one of two black drafters. No, I would not. If you knew that sitting down at the start of the draft, you wouldn't take that. I don't think so. I don't think you should. Yeah, that's wow. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's, that's what no. I feel. That's, that's yeah, black's not good. 
Number 39. Pestle and Haze and even Massacre Worm aren't as powerful as you think. I remember being super let down the first time I played with Massacre Worm. It was just kind of clunky. And a lot of times my opponent's X2s had grown past X2. You know, they're playing green white and all of a sudden they're three threes and your Massacre Worm's not killing anything when it comes down. It, I mean, it's a great card. Don't get me wrong, but it is not the bomb that it has been in the past. Well, and again, like first picking a triple black card feels very dangerous to me. And and much like we talk about Pestilent Haze, like you would think Pestilent Haze would be great against these aggressive strategies, but it just felt like the stars had to align for that perfect turn where you even just got like a two for one with it before your opponent's creatures got too big for that card to matter. Yep. If you try to get greedy and get the three for one, you're going to get punished. Right. Yeah. They just go like Bosri's Acolyte, two plus one <laughs> counters, and you're just like, oh no, now I can kill nothing. Yeah. You feel you feel a sense of relief, I think, if you're firing Pestle and Haze off and getting a two for one. For sure. Number 40. Idol of Endurance is actually great in a white-based aggro deck. I was really skeptical of this card, but it's pretty darn good as a way to just like pick up three or four creatures out of the graveyard to recast them. It really lets you put continual pressure on your opponent. Yeah. And it makes you feel this sense of like, I'm okay to trade off, trade off, trade off because I know I have this like, you know, silver bullet coming at some point in my deck. Right. It allows your, when you have it in your draw, it allows your aggro deck to play an attrition game. For sure. Number 41, Sublime Epiphany can go infinite with Shipwreck Dowser. This is this is the Ethan Sack specialty. Yeah, we're, Lay we're, it on me. We're getting into my portion of the show notes here. Uh, so Sublime Epiphany is the like you know, one of the best rares. The one of those you know ten twelve rares better than Seasoned Hallowblade. So it has the six modes on it, and one of the modes is to uh, copy a creature. So if you copy Shipwreck Dowser in play, then sh- the copy of Shipwreck Dowser when it comes into play, you can return an instant or sorcery from your graveyard to your hand. Well, you copy Dowser, you get that copy comes into play. Picks up Sublime Epiphany out of the graveyard, rinse, repeat, and your opponent cries. You usually don't get to do this more than once before your opponent can <laughs> Usually the head explosion happens on Arena rapidly. Exactly. Number 42, there's not much nonsense available to you in M21, but here's a short list for folks interested. First up is Sanctum of All and the Sanctums. Next up is Peer into the Abyss plus Epitaph Golem. This is generally best in a green-black shell, but in this shell, you are actually targeting yourself with Peer into the Abyss as like a massive draw spell, and then you're using Epitaph Golem to make sure you never deck. Peer plus Tutelage is pretty sweet, too. Oh, that's just easy mode. <laughs> Gadrak plus Havoc Jester is pretty sweet. So things dying make treasure tokens. Then you sack those treasure tokens to get the pings off Havoc Jester. And then this like a huge wombo combo of Terror of the Peaks plus Spore Web Weaver plus either Heroic Intervention or Selfless Savior to make infinite one ones and gain infinite life with Spore Web Weaver. And last but not least, multicolor good stuff with good rares using Thrill of Possibility and Trackdown and Kinetic Augur a la the Theros Beyond Death style decks. Moving on, number 43. Bad deal is, in fact, a very bad deal. (laughs) Number 44. Despite some powerful artifacts and enchantments, you should not be main decking Return to Nature or Rambunctious Mutt in this format. Obviously, Thrashing Brontodon is okay, though. Yeah, agree 100%. I was a little more on Rambunctious Mutt being okay in best of one. At the top of the curve of a white deck didn't feel terrible to me. Yeah, I I think that's like if you don't make playables or whatever, it's fine as a 23rd, 24th card. But I think ideally you're not putting that in your white aggro deck. I agree. It's very powerful out of the sideboard, though. What is a sideboard? 
<laughs> Touche. <laughs> Number 45. Did Ugin end up being the best pack one, pick one in the set? Probably not, but I don't know what is. I mean, like, so like Chandra, Elder Gargaroth, Baneslayer Angel. If you had those with Ugin, like, I think I would still take Ugin because I think pack one, pick one, you can do it. But I don't know. It feels like it's it's not quite colorless, right? It's like a secret green card. So you can ensure yeah. you get ramp. I think Gargaroth, Gargaroth has to attack, though. All those other cards have to attack. They don't do anything on ETB. Honestly, I think Blazing Salvo's in the conversation as well. That's the deal six to two things? Yeah. That's got to be worse than those other cards, right? I don't know. Blazing Salvo's absurd. Jury's still out, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Number 46. Top five reprints in the format that are worse in M21 than before. Number one, Kite Sail Freebooter. Oh, yeah, that card. Whew, I was that card had a target on its back for me. <laughs> Number two, Skyscanner. Yeah, real shame here. Number three, Turn to Slag. Number four, Vidalian Arcanist. Nowhere near as good as it was in Dom. Yeah, and a real disappointment here at number five is Riddle Form. I was so, so hot on this card coming in. And just the fact that it basically isn't playable outside of Blue Red and outside of aggressive versions of Blue Red to boot just made this card feel like kind of a trap more often than not. It's also felt kind of bad to me in Amonkhet Remastered. Are yeah. we just were we just too hot on Riddle Form for a while there? No, Riddle Form was so good in Hour of Devastation. That's what I thought too, but it has it has not felt good to me playing it, especially in Best of One. Number forty seven, dogs are greater than cats in M twenty one. Sorry, folks. Sorry, cat lovers. The cats just didn't get there in this format. They really didn't. Pack Leader and Alpine Houndmaster are great payoffs. Alpine Watchdog and Igneous Cur, Chandra's Magmut are all fine to great two drops. There are just a lot of very, very, very strong dogs in M21. Yeah, what's the green Cat Lord rare Pride Sovereign? Like, that card was just so bad. You're like, cool, I get to maybe pump my Pride Malkin or Bosri's Acolyte. Joel Rail is where the cats were. Oh, loved, I love Joel Rail. That's, that's one of those top 10, 12 rares for me in the set. I think so. Number 48. Lots of blues commons lead you towards aggressive strategies. So just be wary when you're trying to be more defensive. Like, again, we've talked about this before, but cards like, and there's a long list, Riddle Form, Jeskai Elder, Library Larcenist, Frost Breath, Mistral Singer, Tide Skimmer, even Roaming Ghostlight. All of these cards want you to be aggressive. Ghostlight can play a defensive role a little bit to try and catch you up, but the rest of those really want you to be attacking. And if your game plan with blue, which it sometimes is, is divergent from that, these cards plummet in value and there's like awkward tension in best of one where sometimes you're an aggressive strategy but you don't win the die roll and then all of a sudden you need to play a defensive role and you can't right i think that's one of one of the things that's felt so bad to me about riddle form in best of one yeah but then a, a lot of these cards as well jeskai elder what a terrible blocker mistral singer another terrible blocker tide skimmer gets out class at the four drop slot like all these cards are in contingent in you being the beatdown, which sometimes you just can't be right number 49 this format really isn't about keyword big Wah wah, Colossal Dreadmaw. This this has probably been the first time. I have loved Colossal Dreadmaw as a finisher in every format it's been in, except for this one. It was still kind of large if you could ramp into it with a Land of War Visionary, but certainly the worst that Colossal Dreadmaw has been. Yeah, when we saw Fierce Empath existing, I was like, oh, sick. This is going to be great because Dreadmaw is a common. Like you just get a couple Dreadmaws and now you've got a three drop that goes and, and finds it and you just like... One, you didn't have time to set that thing up, but more so it just wasn't what the format felt like it was about. It was just about curving out and beating down. Yep. And to round us out here, number 50, despite not being a very deep or exciting format, 
M21 is a great set to hone your fundamentals. I do think this like really helped to hammer a lot of points home for me and getting to talk about the format with you really helped illuminate a lot of things like that, like line in the sand between three CMC and less and four CMC and more, you know, thinking about four CMC things, pushing damage, thinking about combat tricks in a set where you're attacking and people are incentivized to double block, like all that stuff really got highlighted here. Right. You really have to know who's the beat down, if it's you or not, how you can leverage being the beat down. And if you aren't the beatdown, how you can try to flip the script of the game around and make it to where you survive that and are ultimately turning the corner so that you can be the beatdown. You know, and a lot of that is coming down to figuring out the math of racing or, you know, using a combat trick on your lifelink creature to swing the race a little bit. There, there's a lot of I would say while while M21 is not super deep, it does set up a lot of good aggro gameplay situations. I think that's true. Yeah, I think so. And just like, yeah, like I said, hits home fundamentals, cabs theory from limited resources, right? Cards that affect the board state, drafting decks with good curves, with streamlined game plans, leveraging combat tricks, all that stuff, I think does really reward you here in this format. Yeah. Ultimately, I think I, I'm an M21 apologist. I liked M21 fine. I have no comment. <laughs> <laughs> and folks, that's a great place to wrap us up. Thank you, as always, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. As a reminder, this podcast is proudly sponsored by ChannelFireball.com. If you are going to CFB to purchase cards, product, sign up for CFB Pro to read our articles and others written by amazing content creators, please consider using the code LOL, all caps, at checkout to let CFB know know that we sent you there. You can check us out on Twitch and Twitter. I'm at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. is spelled out. We're both under those same usernames on Twitter, and you can tweet at the podcast at Lords of Limited. If you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Thanks, everybody. See you later. For our sweet, sweet right. patrons. I, I'm like, well, and I'm like Ron Burgundy. I'm just going like, to stumble <laughs> four times if I don't change it in the show. Notes. I'm Ron Burgundy. <laughs> Number 29, Pride Balk and Giving Trample. Yeah, that's what happened. Okay. All right, Ben. All right. <laughs> that was not for the benefit of the outtake. I'd like to say I did that for the sake of the outtake, but that was just me. <laughs> being terrible oh my god that's so funny you just spent 30 seconds retyping this (laughs) wow great